The following message is by a guest speaker of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Well, it wasn't until I was in my mid-30s that I realized I was actually the older brother, <laughs> um, which is maybe explains Steve's experience. Um, it's true that most people who meet us assume he's the older brother because he's always been more mature, more wise, more thoughtful, more calm. But I really am grateful that I don't just have a brother, but he, we really grew up like best friends. And uh, I think that is, for me, the family I grew up in is, for me, the imprint of what community is supposed to look like. And if I didn't have that, I think I'd struggle all my life to figure out what is this thing that everyone's talking about. Why in the church do we call God our father? Why do we call the church our mother? Why do we call each other brother and sister? I wouldn't really understand that had I not come out of the family that shaped me. I know that's not everybody's experience, but I am so grateful that God gave me that experience so that I could describe it with conviction to others. Excuse me. I'm really grateful that I've been invited you know, sometimes when you know a church or, a, or another pastor too well, uh, you don't really get thought of as a guest speaker. And so I feel really privileged that I get to speak to you guys this weekend. And I really like this theme, community. In fact, I think it's a word that not just in church, but throughout every facet of our culture, people are talking about community. I used to think it was just a word that the church people used, but if you're out in the, in the, by the water cooler at work, if you're uh, in your neighborhood, people all talk about this. And the, the truth is <clears throat> that it seems like something everybody yearns for, but if we're all really honest, almost none of us have experienced the fullness of community we'd like to experience. I think most people say, yeah, I, I have some good relationships, some good friendships. I have community But I long for something even more. I long for something deeper. Does that speak to you at all? That you have satisfying relationships, but still it feels like something that the gold standard of what you yearn for has eluded you for most of your life. Some people even thought that getting married was going to take care of that. Um, But as probably many of us know, even in marriage... We don't get quite to that place all the time, do we? Other people thought having children would create a sense of community. But children are horrible, man. They're like (laughs) the most selfish creatures. They they are not here for you. They are not. You, they're like the worst pet in the world. They are there for themselves and you exist for them. Now, I don't want to disparage kids, but if you had kids hoping to have community, how dumb could you, right? I mean, like... (laughs) Maybe later when they grow up and they become your friends. But you see how we all try to get it. And even when we taste a little, we still are left feeling like there's yearning for more. And because I have limited time, I just keep moving forward. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote something in his book, Mere Christianity, that has become rather a well-known quote. Uh, I think it's relevant here in this context. He says, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation 
is that I was made for another world. I love that. And I think that, that captures a lot of what we feel in this earthly life. But the area of community especially, I think it tells the truth. That I think what he's suggesting is that this earthly life cannot possibly touch the depths of the yearnings and the capacities with which we were created. That even in the best earthly life, you won't ever fully feel 100% satisfied. And that's good news because that means heaven is worth looking forward to. Can you imagine if you, you know, on those commercials, people, it doesn't get any better than this. I'm always like, oh my God, I hope it gets way better than this. If, if a day without appointments, watching Netflix and having ice cream is the best it can get, we are hopeless. God, I hope there's better than that in store for us. And, and Lewis is touching on that. What he's saying is, there are yearnings in us that we can't satisfy here because they point to something further on. We can practice now, but if you are hoping to get that ultimate touch of your heart, that deep intimacy to know and be known here, down here on earth, you cannot hope to fully experience that on this side of eternity. Another way of saying it is our relational capacity exceeds what we can experience here on earth. Do you realize that in eternity, we're not even going to have marriage? That is how, and I was so sad when I first thought about this the first time after I got married to Jeannie. I'm like, wait, that means she's not going to be my wife up in heaven? She'd just walk around, she could be like me arm in arm with some other dude and be like, oh, that's all right because we're not married anymore. That depressed me because I'm a little possessive, like she's my lady. But here's what it means. We will experience a connection, a oneness so profound, marriage will be an irrelevant kind of exclusivity. Here on earth, the best you could hope for is that one other soul will look at you and go, all right, fine, you get everything. I mean, you can't ask everyone to treat you like that, right? But that lady back there gives me that with her best effort. And that's, I win the lottery then because I got it once in this earthly life. In heaven, we will all love each other that way. Selflessly, with such earnestness, honesty, passion, and sacrifice that marriage will be an irrelevant necessity because the height we couldn't even get here in marriage will be ours with everyone and with God one day. So there is definitely a yearning for community which I hope none of us fully satisfy while we're alive down here. And yet, I don't want to just say that and go, let's just go home, because it's totally depressing. <laughs> so, I will acknowledge that yes, but even here in this finite, temporary place, a depth of community is possible that will be very satisfying and different from what you'll find in the world. I don't think we're going to get there simply by describing what ideal community looks like, though. And I think that's the approach the church has largely taken, is what would it look like if, and they, they, they describe people would act like this, and people would do this, and there would be programs like this, and so we try to do all those things, and what we learn along the way is the thing that keeps messing it up is what? We, we, it's us! We could describe great community and what it looks like and how people act. And we all get in there and we realize, I have already ruined it. I'm the biggest barrier to community. 
Because what I do is I carry into this community all of my garbage, which I am already so sick of, I can barely stand me. Never mind loving other people. I can't even love myself most. I'm like, I'm just, uh, I suck. I'm just, I'm not that happy with myself most days. And that's because I know me really well. And I know all the secrets. And so you get the idea, right? Is, Is we are the greatest obstacle to community. Which is why when I was asked to speak on the topic, there were so many directions I could go. I decided to address those things which we carry in that break community. I want to touch them right on the head. These things which we carry in with us, which do battle against our yearning for deeper community. And I want to point to Jesus and say there is a way forward, but not if we assume that the only way we're going to get good community is we find better people. This is what always happens. You, you trade up, you get better friends, a different spouse, a new church, always thinking the, other, the problem is always the other people. And never really fully acknowledging how much we ourselves help to destroy community. So where I want to draw from is a very unusual place, maybe. And I want to draw from the seven deadly sins. Are you guys familiar with this? Anybody grew up Catholic? The Catholic Church seems to have retained some familiarity with this list. For most of the rest of us, it might maybe at best be like a Japanese anime series or something. That's, whenever I did a search for seven deadly sins, all I saw was anime. I'm like, I don't know what's happening because I'm, I'm not familiar. Here's what this list is. Now, I, I've got to give you this, this disclaimer right away. It's not a biblical list in that this list of seven things does not appear anywhere in Scripture as a unit. But I'm still going to use it because I think it's a really, really super helpful list. Let me explain the roots of this list. Between the late, like maybe 290 A.D. to around the mid-500s A.D., so not that long after Jesus and his buddies walked the earth, there was a group of men, and in fact, this gets often overshadowed, but a lot of women as well. They were called the desert fathers and mothers. They were people who retreated into the wilderness to leave behind their family, their friends, their jobs, their wealth, to basically shed everything that defined life, and they engaged in a single-minded, totally focused pursuit of two things. They pursued communion with God, and eventually when they got super lonely and realized it was better to do together, these hermit monks in the desert began to find each other and build small communities that grew so that after they sought communion with God, they began to seek community with other people. I don't know if it's God or if it's just us really trying hard, but and a lot of things in church world seem to take on this alliteration or similar sounding thing. So that's easy to remember. They were out there having given up everything to chase two things, communion and community. Communion speaks of our relationship with God. And community speaks of our relationship with ourselves and with other people. And as... The, and. Would you agree with me that if you spent the vast majority of your earthly life in a barren desert trying really hard to learn how to love God and live with other people, that you might learn a thing or two about what is good for that and what gets in the way of that? Because that's really where this this came from. It wasn't like a bunch of desert monks sat around a fire and went, 
what do you think would be like the seven deadliest sins, guys? Come on, let's just play a game and then pass the marshmallows. And oh, how about this one? It wasn't like that. These guys in the heat of the day, and this is how focused they were. Their midday meal was scheduled at 3 p.m. Okay, and they, their day started at 6 a.m. Now, you know that if you start your day at 6 a.m., by what time are you hungry? Like 6.15, maybe. <clears throat> no, but most of us, by around 11, we're getting peckish by noon. We're like, if I don't eat, I'm going to turn green and break things. We're, we're like that. And so they knew this, and from 12 to 3, they scheduled solitary time. In, and they didn't call it rooms. They called them cells, which also tells you something. They would sit in their cell... And they would spend the heat of the midday just praying, reflecting, growing in self-awareness, trying to figure out what is getting in the way of me getting closer to God and closer to others. And as they studied their own hearts, they realized the same certain things kept bubbling to the surface, getting in the way of a desire to stay at it. They would find that there would be flights of fantasy where they would just go, what am I doing in the desert? This is stupid. This is not what God wants for anyone. Let me just go back to town and live a normal life serving God. And they would hear all these voices and they would journal about it. And here's what they realized. These seven things, which are called the seven deadly sins, are the seven distortions of the human heart that most profoundly and consistently get in the way of communion and community. They are not the seven worst things a person can do. They are the seven foundational sins, the building blocks of a twisted heart out of which every other sin arises. Now, that's a theological construct built out of thousands of people for hundreds of years single-mindedly pursuing spiritual formation. So there's value there, but here's the other thing I see. <clears throat> is that there's so much biblical basis for some of their conclusions and findings. These seven things are the most foundational ways that the human soul gets bent. Over the course of this weekend, we're going to hit on four of those. That's because this is not a five-day retreat. Okay, so... <clears throat> If you want to hear the others, there's some books you can, or you can just listen to the, the series that we're working through right now at our church, okay? Um, here's what we're going to look at, <clears throat> and this is the way the ancients, <clears throat> sorry, this is the way the ancients conceived of the seven deadly sins, is they saw these top six as part of a tree, and they saw pride as the trunk out of which all the other things grew. So they understood that though there were seven, pride got extra credit. It was kind of like the thicker, more muscular of the distortions. Because once you succumb to pride, all that other stuff seems justified. It seems valid. It's easy once you do this to do that. So what we'll do tonight is I'm going to touch lightly on pride. And then we're going to touch wrath, envy, and sloth. Because I really believe these, these three other ones are perhaps the ones that work most consistently and directly against the formation of community. Are you with me so far? So we'll, we'll explore sloth, envy, and wrath a little bit more fully over tomorrow and Sunday. And tonight I'm going to touch lightly on the topic of pride. Okay? <clears throat> now we live in times when pride is actually not a vice. It's considered the greatest virtue. 
among every downtrodden, marginalized group in our society, you put that group's blank name and pride. Right away, you got Illini pride, you got this pride, that pride, and I get what they're saying. And I'm fully in agreement that marginalized, oppressed people groups need to see dignity restored. So I understand why the word pride is used. I just wish they'd pick a different word. Because the word pride doesn't really best address what's needed. What they're getting at is that everybody yearns for a sense of dignity, value, worth, inclusion. It's not pride we're after so much as a sense that I have value and worth in this world. C.S. Lewis wrote, <clears throat> if you haven't, how many of you have not read Mere Christianity? Okay, so cancel Netflix and get this book. I don't know what you're doing with your life. You've got to read this book. It's really a good book. Really a good book. Here's what it said. he says. There is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. Now that sounds to me like a quality that guarantees broken community. How many of you guys, if someone said to you, hey, I just, I don't know if you know this, but I just want to tell you, you are one of the people I've met who is the most full of himself that I've ever met. You're like, you know, thank you. That, that's not a compliment, is it? We universally find people who are prideful, very distasteful and off-putting. It's not an attractive quality that you emulate in others. You never say, I want to be as prideful as that lady. She has got pride down. I mean, she walks around like, oh my gosh, she knows how good she is. Okay? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, do, are we drawn to that? When you meet a prideful person, is your first thought, how do I get to be friends with you? I love that quality. You know, the person goes, enough about me. Let's talk about how you feel about me. <laughs> Self-centeredness. So pride is universally an ugly thing, it breaks relationships, it makes us want to be repellent to each other, and yet, what Lewis is pointing out is, it's one of the hardest things to spot in ourselves. It's one of the hardest sins to admit to. If you survey people and say, hey, do you feel like you struggle with gluttony? A little bit, yeah. Um, and often, if you struggle with gluttony, you know, it's, it's fairly evident in all different ways. If you're passed out drunk, yeah, you got a gluttony problem. You drink too much. You get the idea, right? If you've watched six seasons of a show over the course of one weekend, you have a gluttony problem. Lust, you know, these things most people are like, you know, and I'm always surprised today how openly people own their lust. I'm addicted to porn. Now, people, they don't even like say, they're like, yeah, please help me, pray for me. I'm like, wow, you should feel at least some remorse over, I mean, but pride, you go, hey, are you prideful? They're like, I don't know, I guess everyone's a little prideful, but I don't feel like it's a big problem for me. It's almost impossible in a room this size to find very many people who would say, I think that's my biggest problem, is I'm proud. I'm prideful. And so Jesus tells us a little story to help us see what pride looks like when we universally together 
disdains someone else's pride, and then he says, now I want you to look in your own heart and see if you find that guy in your own spirit. I got I to gotta cruise. All right. So here's the story. <clears throat> Luke 18, 9 through 14. You know the story. It's of two guys praying in the temple. Now, I know Dr. Steve did a masterful treatment of the entire Gospel of Luke over the course of 16 years. Um, this is a great series. <clears throat> I'm not going to try to compete with that. I just want to touch on the story to point out two important things. Listen to what Jesus says. And it's a story. It's a, it's, a, it's a story with a moral, but it's still a very powerful. It could have happened in real life. And he also told this parable to some people. What kind of people is he talking to? People who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted." It's another one of those great reversals that the Bible is full of, where God's kingdom works opposite of the kingdom of this world. When you're busy lifting yourself up, someone else more powerful will be working to bring you down. And when you're humble, someone more powerful than you will be working to pull you up. That's the way God's kingdom works. The first thing you notice here is that pride is self-righteousness. And this is one of the hardest things to admit or detect in ourselves. What kind of people is Jesus addressing in this story? People who, when they think about themselves, say, you know what? I'm pretty good. I'm definitely better than all of you. I know it in my heart. I know that if we're having a righteousness pageant, I'm going to at least be second, third runner-up at the, at the least. And I know some of you won't even be contenders. And as long as, you know that old joke, if you're running in the woods and a bear comes, you don't have to outrun everybody, you just have to outrun one person. Because <laughs> as soon as the bear catches the slow dude, he's eating and you're safe. That's, that's the idea. And so this idea is, as long as I can find one person worse than me, I'm okay. I'm all right. Would you consider yourself a righteous person? I'm just going to ask that question point blank to you. Which, this is always uncomfortable, right? What if I actually did Raise your hand if you... Oh. The other Sunday, um, this past Sunday, our, our associate pastor gave a reverse altar call. Where instead of, if you're messed up and need help, stand up. He said, if you're doing really well, stand up. And everyone's like, I don't know if I'm supposed to... Is that, I don't be presumptuous. It was so uncomfortable at first because everyone thought, I should, but maybe I'm not... And then he had all who stood pray for those who were seated. So it was really creative. It was clever. I, I thought it was a great way to do an altar call. 
But if we were just to ask the question and ask each of you to raise your hand, would you consider yourself one of the good guys? Righteous person. And if you were to raise your hand, the, the second follow-up question is, how do you know this? How do you determine? Like, what is your calculus to figure out, am I righteous in this moment right now? Am I overall a righteous person? Now, I think we know the biblical answer, the gospel answer, which is our righteousness comes from Christ alone. Not from what we have done, not by works that we might boast, but it is the grace and the gift of God and blah. We know that, but here's the truth. It's uncomfortable to admit, but more of us are like this Pharisee in the story than we care to admit. I know this because when we've messed up morally, we feel very low and unconfident before God, don't we? You hit all the red lights on the way to work, you're like, yeah, well, I shouldn't be surprised. I did not, I was not a good person yesterday. This is what I deserve. When you sprain your ankle or something bad happens, you assume it's God's justice because you know you don't have the, the leg to stand on to ask God for his favor. And so you walk about really insecure, a little scared, nervous, wondering when the other shoe's going to drop. But when you've done lots of good things, you're like, oh, God's going to be smiling on me today. I walked in here, and I just came back from six mission trips in a row, and I led seven stewardesses to Christ on the airport. That's probably with Steve, that he probably led every person on the flight crew to Christ. And so you're coming back thinking, I'm going to be really in good standing with God. We know theologically that's not how it works, but tell your heart that. Because the truth is, most of us work on a sense of an economy of Christian karma even more in practical terms than the gospel, don't we? Now, maybe, maybe I'm preaching to Harvest, but I'm talking to ICC, so you guys are probably very different. But I know at Harvest that a lot of people, when I hear the way they process what's going on in their lives, I detect the aroma of karma more than gospel. Now, this guy had good reason to be confident in himself. He identifies two of the things that to this day, 2,000 years later, remains two of the hardest things to do as a Christian. How many of you love fasting? You're like real good at it. If there are fasting Olympics, gold medal quality right here. We hate fasting, don't we? I mean, how many of you like not eating? That's hard to do even today. We, we fast. I mean, I fasted all through Holy Week, and it was a blessing this year, but it's the first time in all of my Christian life that fasting during all of Holy Week was a blessing. It's usually just torture. And then he tithes everything he gets. And if you read Matthew 23, you see that these Pharisees, when they say they tithe, they are serious. Like if they find a fortune cookie on the street, they rip off 10% of that fortune cookie and give it to God. Like that's how serious they were, 10% of everything. Where do you think the church in America is today on tithing? Even if it may not be a biblical standard, it's certainly not the ceiling. It's, it's kind of considered a, a sort of elementary standard of giving. We hope out of joy in Christ, we exceed 10%. But the church in America is maybe, if you're very generous, at around between 1% to 2% giving. And that even, I think, is very generous. So even to this day, knowing everything Jesus has done, these two things remain two of the hardest things for us to do as Christians. And this guy was fasting not just once a week. I, for years, fasted every Thursday. 
I'm ashamed to admit that some Thursdays I couldn't do it, and I'd sneak into a town, one town over, and drive to the McDonald's drive-thru, and then hide in the parking lot and be like, <laughs> because I didn't want anyone from my seminary to see me. That's how I am, because some day, I mean, it was just so hard to fast some weeks. This dude didn't just do one day a week, twice a week. And everything he ever touched that he could call his, God got 10%. If you did even just that, if you could honestly say that about your life, wouldn't you walk around being like, I definitely beat the curve at this church, that's for sure. I, I know that if God looks out, he's like, oh, yeah, I see you, I see you, thank you, thank you. Like, you know you'd be one of those guys, wouldn't you? So it's not like this guy's just being arbitrarily full of himself. It's not easy to live the life he's living, and he knows it. That simple statement, I fast twice a week and pay tithes of all I get, represents a very focused, disciplined lifestyle of commitment and religious faithfulness. And before we go staring, sneering down our noses at this guy, I don't think we could even say that about ourselves. So let's not be too harsh on this Pharisee. If we're giving out God point averages, this guy's GPA is better than yours. And here's the thing about prideful people, is that they usually do have a pretty high GPA. They are doing things that don't come naturally, and probably most of us are not doing. They have a good attitude when everyone else seems to just give into a bad attitude. You know what I'm saying? So sometimes you start feeling like, what's wrong with everybody? Why is this so hard? Why is everyone's attitude so bad? And you start to get a little huffy. Do you ever experience that? Like, what's wrong with everybody? Because I'm awesome, and I, it's not easy to be this awesome, but I try. Why won't anyone try like me? Do you know that, that attitude that starts to well up in you, especially when you're seizing upon something you're really doing well? You know, I would see this from time to time ever since I was a youth pastor. Someone would get a bug up their, <clears throat> in their bonnet. <laughs> I almost said something crass. I'm not at harvest, so I'll, I'll keep it clean. But, you know, you, you get kind of a, a twitch in you, and you go, you know, why isn't everybody ticked off about trafficking? I can't believe abortions are happening, and none of you seem to care. When's the last time we talked about impeaching Trump? And on and on, you, you get something in your heart that you think is so important, and it obsesses you, and it dominates your world, and you, you can't believe that every other faithful Christian wouldn't be this agitated about it. And because you are on the right side of that issue, what happens? You start to get very focused on how you measure up well in this area because when you look at the curriculum you're taking, you're focusing all your heavy-weighted grades on the class you're good at. You sort of, eh, I know the other stuff. And I've seen this happen. There are people who are on the right side of immigration, gender equality, Sexual identity, race, economic justice, on and on. And when they get on the right side, and I'm not saying they're wrong, they are on the right side of that issue, and they see how apathetic most other people are, they start to get so upset that they don't realize how many shortcuts they're taking in other areas. Oh, I know I really have a bad temper, but wouldn't you? I mean, how can you be upset with me about this? Or they... they watch all kinds of really raunchy things. They go, you think in a world where people are being abused like this, where there's all this stuff going on that God cares what you look at or God cares what words or syllables come out of your mouth? You're like, you're swearing right now. I know, because I'm so angry. You think God cares about my language? How could you not be swearing with me? Do you get the idea? 
is that we grade when we're prideful on a biased scale. We give ourselves an A on the things that we're already getting an A in and don't even look at how much, in other words, the light of the good in us is eclipsing any willingness or ability to see the dark in us. This is more than just merely insecure defensiveness. This Pharisee in the story is utterly convinced that he is superior to other people. In fact, he's impatient, a little indignant, maybe incredulous why other people live like this tax collector. Why can't more people be like me? This is not a defense mechanism. It's something that has sunk to the core of him. He truly believes that he is righteous because he has made right choices, right beliefs, right statements. He truly believes that's what makes him righteous. It's like building a wall around you. And you know what's so interesting is this guy, okay, he's willing to give the sacrifice of money. He's willing to sacrifice food. But listen to what other parts God says. Because yes, God did require the sacrifice of food and the sacrifice of money as ways of worshiping, uh, expressing devotion to him, getting his attention, loving him. But look at these other things. He says, the sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit or a contrite heart, a repentant heart. That's the sacrifice that God also clearly says he requires of us. But this Pharisee in the story was not willing to give that. But because he got an A on the tithing class and the fasting class, he was okay with getting a D minus on the repentance class, and he didn't even acknowledge that shortcoming. The problem with pride is it gives us a very distorted sense of how we relate to other people. And the minute you start to believe that you have something inherent to yourself, which you have produced, that sets you above others, it immediately begins to work against community. If you're a mom and with great pain, you have said no to your children. You'll watch them throw their hissy fits while you took away their phone and you saw them convulsing on the floor and looking like they're... You know that that look when you take away your kid's iPad? It looks like they're actually having a seizure. You know, like it looked really... It's scary. And you're a mom who you just go, I don't care. It's for you. I love you. It's not easy. You think this is easy for me? It's not easy for anyone. And you see another mom going, just give it to them. And you're like... Now, let me ask you, you being that mom, do you want to go to a mom's group with those other ladies who just give the iPhone and the iPad willy-nilly to their children because they don't want their kids to get mad at them? And you see how much it cost you, but you stood by your guns and you, you stood your ground. And you're like, can I really call you my sister? Can I think of you as my equal? What about if you're super fit and you see a guy like me? You're like, oh, this guy doesn't want exercise. He forces himself. But, and you're like, why? You're only young once. Why not move while you can move? And if you're doing well in that, you're probably like, what's wrong with everybody? you just like, you want to be dead already. I know people who would watch the movie a thousand times, but never, ever try to read the book. But if you love books, you're like, everybody's so stupid. We're, we're like a ridiculous culture. 
And you see that when you start thinking that way, that self-righteous attitude, it develops slowly into a kind of pride that at its root makes you not want to seek community with people this weak, this inferior, this unfaithful, this without a backbone. You, you can begin to appreciate it, I hope. And there's so much more nuance and depth to this. I'm just, you know, like I always tell people, you want the, the deep theology, keep sitting under Steve's preaching. If you want the monkey practical stuff, listen to me. I, I, I'm not going to go that deep with all, but I'm trying to get you to see something. That what pride does is it makes you not want community because you don't want to be considered in league with such people. You're actually looking down on them and looking up at yourself. And it's not like just arrogance. It's saying, I am good, and I don't want to be infected by the inferiority people who don't even work this hard at trying. It's like putting up a fence to protect yourself from being infected by the weakness, compromise of others and finding out that basically what you've done is cut yourself off from all community. On the other hand, look at the sharp contrast with this guy who is clearly going to lose in a morality contest with the Pharisee. He can't even look at God. And he's broken and contrite. And he says, God, I don't have a leg to stand on. If I can stand here in your house and not be smitten, it will be because you were merciful to me. I have no illusions about what kind of person I am. I know what lurks in my heart. Unlike the Pharisee, I actually let it all out. I didn't hide it. I didn't discipline it. I was everything outside that I was inside. And look at the damage I've caused in my life. No pretense. No illusion. I know me, and I'm not good. Let me ask you, which of these two guys do you want to be in community with? Who do you want in your CG? Do you guys call them CGs here? All right. I mean, don't you see that we are naturally repelled by people who are self-righteous? But we're really drawn to people who, even in their imperfections, are honest and authentic. Now, there's a point at which authenticity becomes casualness, where you're just like, yeah, I stink, and I'm fine with it. I'm not talking about that. I'm saying an honest, gut-wrenching integrity about your own righteousness and knowing that if there's any righteousness in me, it came from the gift of God, not from my choices and my discipline and my character. Which guy seems more real to you? Which one are you drawn to? Which one do you think others see you as more often than not? That's a hard one. You can't answer that for yourself, okay? You gotta actually ask people. Which one of these two dudes do you think I'm more like most of the time? I'm going to get in trouble if I don't finish soon. I've got a little more to go, so let me just blaze through this. The second thing, and this is the last point, is that the pride Jesus is pointing out isn't just that I'm good by myself, but it's this quiet voice that says, I'm better. I'm not just good, but I'm better than someone else. See, this Pharisee established his sense of himself primarily through comparison. 
he compared himself to the law's standard and he tried to measure up, and then he compared himself to other people and he measured up. His righteousness was not the product of genuine worship, devotion, humility, love, dependence. It was built through an absolute focus on comparison and approval. And as a result, he said things like this, I am not like other people. Somewhere in your heart, at some point, in some context, you have thought those words about yourself. I know I have. I know Steve has. I know for sure Steve has. Because he's just so different in so many good ways. Like, I am not like other people. He remembers what the airport smelled like when he was four years old and we moved to the United States. I don't even remember moving. He remembers what the airport smelled like. So, yes, Steve is not like other people. But at some level, every one of us has believed that about ourselves, haven't we? I'm not like other people, man. I think differently. I live differently. I'm driven differently. And when we say I'm not like other people, there's two ways to say it. You could say it in pain. I am not like other people, man. I'm different, I'm misunderstood, I'm marginalized. You could say it in pain, but most of us, what Jesus is addressing is when you say it in pride, you say, I'm definitely not like other people. I work really hard at these things. I take it seriously. I don't just brush it off. I don't compromise. I really go for it. I see this on my son's basketball teams. There's always those kids who made the team, but you're like, why are you even here? You don't even look like you're trying. It's not that hard to try. Just try a little. I don't want to try. I'm just enjoying myself. And like, is it that hard to really just give it your oomph? And then the kids who do, they're like, yeah, you're dead weight, man. I am not like you. We may wear the same jersey, play for the same school, but I am not like you. I have a fire in my belly. I want to win. I hate losing. And so I am not like other people. Now, this is not the kind of arrogance that broadcasts itself. You don't have a blog called IamAwesome.com. But look at what it says. The Pharisee stood praying this to himself. He's not even praying to God. He's like, self, listen, you are, you are so like, not like other people. I mean, take a look at that loser over there. Look at him. He's a praying. He's like, he can't even look up at God because he is failing the class. Thank God I'm not like him. Thank God. And thank me that I'm not like him. It's a very hard thing to detect because it's very worn on the inside. It's this quiet conviction you have that really when God looks at the church, he knows. Come on. You know I'm not like these guys. Come on. Come on. And that's what, and isn't this why then when, when the pastor yells at the whole church, you're like, hey, don't include me with them. I'm trying. I don't want to be the same as them. It's a very subtle but very deeply seated self-exaltation. I am not like other people. And the net effect, whether you say that out of pain or out of pride is it cuts you off from community by telling you at the most deep level, these people are not like you, and you are not like them. 
See, we're made in God's image, so I think our hearts abhor being cast low. We were not made to be low, to be nothing. We were made to, to carry the image of God. So when we are low, something deep in us yearns to be lifted up. That's not problematic. That's actually how God made us, is we abhor being cast low, being nothing. When you have no dignity, no worth, no sense of value, the human heart was not designed to be okay with that, to be comfortable in that state. It is natural and God-given that we want to be elevated, lifted up out of the ashes of failure, worthlessness, marginalization. But the problem is not the desire to be lifted, it's trying to lift ourselves. Believing somehow I can make things better, I can restore my sense of dignity by just saying, I'm proud of me, darn it, I don't care what anyone else thinks. I'm quite happy with me as I am. You're not the boss of me. I don't care what anyone else thinks of me. And the way we try to regain, reclaim dignity and worth and value is by saying, I don't care what anyone else thinks. I love me. I'm proud of me. And I've lifted myself up. Try You know that, that phrase, lift yourself up by the bootstraps? Try it. See how many inches off the ground you get lifting yourself up by the bootstraps. But I guarantee you, I don't care who you are in this room, I can lift you at least one inch higher than you could lift yourself. Am I right? We're trying to lift ourselves, and it never works. And there was one who said, when you are appropriately low, it is my joy to lift you up. Pride is not just something that makes you ugly and unpopular and unattractive. It is that. Right? Pride universally is repellent, but it's also serious. It's a silent killer. It's like a cancer to our souls. And pride is especially dangerous because you don't really know that you're sick with it. It's very hard to detect in ourselves. Some of us, if we had to line, you know like those, those things where you go, everyone line up by height or line up by age, and everyone's, it's like an icebreaker, because you're like having to ask each other, uh, you look older, sorry, but are you maybe, what year are you born? And we arrange ourselves in a rank. If I were to say to you, line up in order of humility to pride, the most prideful person over here, <laughs> the most humble person over here, honestly, where do you think you'd put yourself in that line? You know this church, you know these people. Do you see, when you put it like that, how notoriously difficult it is to get a good handle on where you are in terms of pride? And I barely scratched the surface. Pride shuts us off from feedback. When you're self-justified, you make it a habit of life. No one can change your mind on anything. No one can challenge you. No one can speak into your life because you've already convinced yourself, I know why I'm like this. You don't have to tell me. I've already figured it out. I know and I can live with it. And everyone else around you is like, no, you really don't fully have it. Could we please just tell you something? Every one of us knows someone that it's impossible to correct or change. Like, there's that person in everyone's life, no one has ever changed their thinking. Some of us grew up under a parent like that, often a father, sometimes a mother. It is so frustrating and soul-sucking to grow up under an authority figure who cannot be challenged or changed in any way because they are so prideful and don't even know. 
that they are unable to be wrong. They are always justified in what they feel, what they say, what they do. And just think about how much that kind of pride has brought misery and hardship into the communities in your life. Friendships, families, church, teams. To get an idea of how serious it is, C.S. Lewis says, the pride is what makes the devil the devil. That's the ultimate moral failure is pride. Without pride, Satan would not be who he is. And so we look to Christ and remember that he epitomized this way of yielding himself, pouring himself out, emptying himself, and saying, I will not justify myself or aggrandize myself. I will not exalt myself. I have one who will do that for me. And that's exactly what he did. And when you see this attitude, which we are all so familiar with, look at the result when he risked it all and said, let God do the defending, the exalting, the justifying of me. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I know that in a series of messages like this when we're talking about community, every one of us at some point has had a negative experience of community. And so because you're, bur- you're burned before, you have scars, you have dissatisfactions, it's very easy to immediately hear these sermons on the behalf of others and say, I hope everyone here is listening to this. I really hope my CG is paying attention because I've been saying this for months. Like, our CG doesn't have real community. We talk about Bulls games and the new iPhone and where is... And you're, you may be saying, please be hearing this. I'm going to ask you not to hear these for anyone else. Because you might be astounded to discover that one of the greatest enemies of community in your life has always been you. That doesn't let everyone else off the hook. It only puts the light at the one person you can actually deal with. I can repent for me. But can I really repent for you in any meaningful way? So I want to ask you as we continue on this weekend not to think about how these messages justify your position but really ask the Lord to expose what's hidden in you and especially tonight with respect to pride. Man, I'm so late. Sorry, Steve. I'm done. (laughs) Much more to be said. Not going to get said. But I hope that you will (laughs) I hope that you will, for the remainder of this retreat, be having that mindset. What are you saying to me? If we could all humble ourselves before God and let him shape us, I think the net effect will be that the community we yearn for here at ICC will start to seem a little bit more realistic, a little bit more attainable, 
because one of the primary obstacles is being dealt with. That is us. I'm going to pray for us and invite Pastor Reggie and team to come back up for a moment. I'm just going to pray for us. As I pray, would you join me in your own heart in praying this prayer? Let's pray. If you are guilty of a kind of pride that is really hurting the relationships in your life, you may not even be aware that that's the case. Others around you know, but they cannot tell you because you cannot hear. Some have taken a great risk to say things to you and have been severely punished for taking that risk. If you cannot recall the last time someone legitimately changed your heart, convicted you of something, made you see yourself in a different light, it's very likely that pride is a big issue for you. If you're always right, if you win every argument, if you're always doing the lecturing and never being spoken to, it's very possible that pride is a big problem for you. If every time someone says, take it easy, why are you doing this? And you say, it's because of everyone else. It's always someone else's fault. It's possible that pride is a big issue for you. And if pride has grabbed your heart, every other sin is not far behind. Jesus, will you, and only you, through your authority, through your kindness, through the piercing, truthful clarity of your spirit, show us what our hearts look like. It's not safe to invite anyone else to really do that until we've sat and done it with you. You have loved us unfailingly. If anyone must wound us, we want it to be you. Come, Holy Spirit, and root out of this church and out of my heart any pride that's breaking up relationships and working against community here at ICC. Lord, give us the humility that you wore so naturally. We've never doubted you are almighty, and yet we have always known you are the most humble of us. So come Holy Spirit, come Lord Jesus, come Heavenly Father, and begin the hard but important work of humbling your sons and daughters. We ask this in Jesus' name.